You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues, or we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials or even starting to appear on shelves or by prescription or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoy the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Future Tech Health podcasts, and I have Dr. Marty Scharf, who's a research director at the Cleveland Sleep Research Clinic. So, uh, Marty, how are you doing? Thanks for coming. I'm doing great. Thank you. Yeah. So I saw in the uh, in the notes that we're going to be talking about fibromyalgia uh, as a sleep disorder. So um, maybe you could introduce the concept and where the idea came from and kind of go from there. Okay. Um, you know, fibromyalgia has, or uh, to a large extent, been a diagnosis of exclusion um, with uh, primarily subjective symptoms um, result the diagnosis. And um, for many physicians, um, uh, the absence of objective data and the uh, many different factors that are thought to contribute to fibromyalgia uh, make them just believe that it is not a single entity. In fact, at one point, when I submitted a paper on fibromyalgia to the New England Journal of Medicine, I was told by them that they would never accept a paper on fibromyalgia because they didn't believe that it was a real entity. There is no question in my mind that it is very real. And the most common symptom in the disorder is a complaint of non-restorative sleep. Patients tell hmm. you that no matter how much they still wake up tired. They wake up in a fog. And uh, this is the most prominent symptom is pain. And they have pain upon palpation at as many as 18 different tender points. And when they get a flare-up, it gets extremely uncomfortable. Um, so let me give you a little background on this condition. Um, okay. And the way I got to it, okay? As a sleep clinician, um, I was interested in treating a lot of different sleep disorders, including narcolepsy. And um, a paper out of Canada by uh, Mamalek and Broughton reported that gamma-hydroxybutyrate, a precursor and metabolite of GABA, the most common, um, uh, the, one of the most common neurotransmitters in, in, in our body, um, mm -hmm. that... Um, that these folks have um, uh, some real real problems with um, um, with the binding of GABA. That's what we think. 
Um, and okay. what happens is they present with, with all of these symptoms. Um, the, the, the diagnostic criteria are a history of those uh, different pain areas, um, no other uh, factors contributing to it. Um, and um, <laughs> if they have the constellation, they're given the diagnosis. Uh, there's really nothing that's very effective to treat the condition except um, a couple compounds that have been improved that primarily work on pain and don't really help um, the majority of the other symptoms. So I was working on treating narcolepsy and um, introduced to the drug gamma-hydroxybutyrate, gamma which had a dramatic effect on these patients. I was given permission by the FDA to conduct an open-label study on these folks, which lasted for 17 years. We collected 800 patient years of safety data, more safety data than any orphan drug in history. Um, I was contacted eventually by the FDA, the Division of Orphan Drug Products, and, and introduced to a company called Orphan Medical. I offered Orphan Medical all of our data for free if they would develop the drug. They went ahead and did it, and their findings were virtually identical to our own uh, that we had already published. Well, in 2002, ultimately, the drug was approved for the treatment of narcolepsy. Um, and um, unfortunately, along the way, the uh, GHB was used for date rape and for other um, uh, illicit uses um, and um, became... Um, uh, reclassified. It was an over-the-counter compound, and it became reclassified as a, um, a class one uh, compound um, with no medicinal value whatsoever. Hmm. Well, um, but after testifying at the um, in Congress um, to the Judiciary Committee, um, I was able to uh, get the drug a bifurcated approval. So it was approved for use in narcolepsy only, and any other use was considered completely illicit. Okay, well, now the drug was approved, and we began to consider what other, um, what else is going on here? The drug we found increased the deep stages of sleep in a dose-response way. So in order to test if this was real, we knew that 80% of one's growth hormone is released during the deep stages of sleep. So to see if this was pharmacologic, um, a physiologic rather, we um, began to look for, we began to test the drug first with Dr. Evan Powder at the University of Chicago um, to see if it had a dose response effect on growth hormone, and indeed it did. So now we have a compound that increases um, uh, the deep stages of sleep in a dose response way and similarly increases the release of growth hormone in a dose-response way. So we began to look for a disorder where there was a deficiency in growth hormone. And that's where we discovered the literature on fibromyalgia and the fact that, again, these fibromyalgia patients, are their sleep issues are just horrific. Um, and, um, it's you know, if you don't sleep or if your sleep is not restful, it's like torture. So that's we did... Horrible, yeah. in, we, be, we did a, uh, a study in patients with fibromyalgia. Now, here's something that's very critical to um, the remainder of the discussion, and that is that Moldovsky in Canada had a series of papers in which he reported that 70%, 70%, two-thirds 
of patients with fibromyalgia have an abnormality in their sleep called alpha intrusion. Alpha waves, which we're all familiar with, are brainwave patterns of 8 to 12 cycles per second or around there, and um, occur primarily during relaxed wakefulness, okay? Um, and while they may be present somewhat in sleep, they generally, the, um, the alpha waves generally disappear during sleep. And, um, but for some people, the alpha waves persist during sleep and, in fact, are superimposed on the other waves, the other wave patterns throughout the night. Um, well, this was first described in people with depression, that uh, people had this alpha wave intrusion. And now we're seeing it in fibromyalgia, okay? But it's only 70%. So I did a study looking at the, uh, what we did is we took patients with a history of fibromyalgia. Now, again, this is all subjective, okay? And um, we ran them in the sleep lab. And we identified right. the patients had, that had at least 30% of their non-REM epochs with alpha waves. Now, that's an arbitrary cutoff. But having been in the sleep field for so long, um, we knew that that was abnormal. So we would just accept. Wait, can you uh, can you can you say more about that? What does that mean? Non-REM well, epochs and yeah, can you epoch, more yeah, okay. okay, we when we look at sleep, we're looking at sleep in thirty second thirty second segments. And the reason we're looking at we were looking at it in thirty second segments is because um, at that time we were still collecting data on paper through an EEG machine, and um, each page was, would last 30 seconds um, so that a box of paper, which was a 1,000 pages, would last for eight hours, okay? That's the way sleep, that's the way it had been recorded previously before the computer age. Um, so we would look at, go through the pages, and at, if the person had at least 30% of non-REM sleep, and remember, sleep is divided into REM sleep, where dreaming occurs, and non-REM sleep, which is where stages one, two, and three are, are present. Okay, so we looked at the non-REM sleep, and we looked for the alpha intrusion in at least thirty percent of the epoch. When we did that, we now had a more homogeneous population. Remember that if people with fibromyalgia are thought to have it's thought to have a, a variety of etiology, and um, you know, I mean, in some cases, there were people that, that, that uh, were reporting after um, some type of an auto accident where they had, um, uh, you know, were really bumped around um, would develop symptoms of fibromyalgia um, afterwards. And, of course, they'd go, at, after the accident, they were fine. And a little while later, they're going to the doctor telling them about all these aches and pains and nobody's believing them. And they're just thinking lawsuit. Okay. So. We were trying to find some objective information about this, and the sleep EEG gave us that objective information um, that we could use to try to um, make the group more homogeneous. Well, we did that, and then we started our study in gamma-hydroxybutyrate, GHB, which is marketed as Xyrem by Jazz Pharmaceuticals for the treatment of narcolepsy. Well, our result, we used the same type of design in terms of how we administered the drug, which was twice a night because the drug has a very short half-life. Um, and lo and behold, the results of our study, A, showed a, a significant increase in slow-wave sleep that was maintained. Um, 
But what we saw was, for the very first time, a decrease in the alpha wave component. We were literally fixing their sleep. And along with that was a dramatic improvement in pain. In fact, one of the first things that the patients told us was that um, they experienced a clarity in thinking. The fibro fog was gone. Um, The pain was markedly reduced. Their sleep was dramatically improved. And they would wake up and go, so this is what it's like to feel refreshed. We were thrilled. And for and to us, um, having seen this and now beginning to understand that this may be, you know, even in, in cases where you see alpha intrusion in depression, no one has really paid any attention to that. No one has paid any attention to the effects of antidepressants on sleep patterns. They're not even tested on sleep patterns. Um, what so is, we have uh, no idea what, what, about that directly. What is, al- what is alpha intrusion, by the way? What, can you define that more and, and what happens okay. specifically? Yes. It's, it's, it was first called alpha-delta sleep, where the delta waves, which are the high-voltage, slow waves of deep sleep, when you see somebody having uh, deep, a lot of delta sleep, um, you, you, that's where night sweats occur, uh, usually occurs in the first part of the night. Um, good, deep sleep is wasted on children that don't appreciate it, but they have it with every single cycle. Um, and as we get older, we begin to lose some of that deep sleep along with losing our growth hormone. Um, when alpha waves are present, superimposed on the deep, slow waves, that's called alpha-delta sleep. And they look like delta waves with sort of a saw-tooth um, side to, their, um, to the rise and fall of, of the wick. Um, it's very obvious to anybody who's looked at these um, that this is not your typical slow wave. Um, and we call, again, we call it alpha. Uh, that was called alpha delta sleep. We've seen alpha intrusion throughout the whole night in, a lot, in most of these patients. Okay, so well, that's what causes what it. What, what causes it? What is the effect of the alpha okay, intrusion? We, we don't know what causes the non restorative sleep, and we don't know what causes fibromyalgia. There is a theory out there now um, that. that um, that fibromyalgia may be um, a result of um, the herpes virus. You know, patients hmm. with fibromyalgia almost never get cold sores, okay? And the herpes virus okay. attacks the nervous system, um, which it loves, okay? And for some people, the results are a cold sore. For other people, it lingers, and it is contributing to um, the, the fibromyalgia. Now, um, my understanding is is that some people are working on and have, and have, have uh, um, gotten approved a um, a vaccine for this condition. Um, how that all is going to work out, I don't know yet. Okay, but I do know that um, compared to the drugs currently approved for fibromyalgia, um, we were able to show a, um, a a very dramatic effect. But again. Uh, just to show you how important this is, there have been several studies of um, pregabalin or Lyrica. Okay, um, Daiichi came out with this, had come out with a um, uh, a more effective long-term um, Lyrica, and it was tested in fibromyalgia worldwide all at once. They were so sure of the success of this that um, rather than do it in one country at a time. They did it worldwide, expecting to be able to launch it worldwide all at once. Well, I was part of that. 
in the investigator meeting, I stood up and asked, how can you do a study in fibromyalgia without a sleep component? Okay. And they basically said, well, we didn't use a sleep component. Other people didn't use it, so we didn't use it. It wasn't considered necessary. And I said, but okay. you don't have a homogeneous population. And here's what happened. Okay. They didn't reach significance, even though Lyrica um, um, itself reached, you know, is marketed because it reached significance. This compound did not. And what I believe happened, and this happened with um, Tonic's drug on uh, uh, for fibromyalgia. It happened with Estellus's drug with fibromyalgia. What they did was they did it the old-fashioned way, selecting people on the basis of history. Well, if you if a third of your people really don't have the condition that you think you're treating or you're testing, it's going to affect the um, it's going to dilute the effectiveness and uh, impact your ability to reach the okay so yeah i was asking you so did they naysay the sleep component or did they say oh okay we'll include it what happened no they just dropped it okay they never did anything no. more with it okay so all that money's been wasted and um the i'm, I'm absolutely convinced that had they um, because if a third of your patients don't meet the criteria they they're going to dilute the 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 findings and um you're going to end up a likely a greater likelihood of having a negative finding, which is exactly what happened with each of these companies, okay, and each of these compounds. Now um, we know that GABA, that the GHB, gamma hydroxybutyrate, binds to the GABA B receptor. There are GABA A and GABA B receptors. GABA A is where benzodiazepines bind. GABA B is where um, GHB binds, and it also binds to its own specific receptor. Um, GHB has a, um, well, um, so so um, we began to look at what's called um, positive allosteric um, uh, modulators, which essentially enhance the binding characteristics of compounds at um, the the GHB, the, the GABA B receptor. Okay. Hmm. Now, that, those a compound like baclofen, which is very similar to GHB, should do the same thing as GHB. In fact, it does, but it has a lot of withdrawal effects and it has a lot of side effects, which really makes it um, not very useful. So what we are currently doing is looking at these positive allosteric modulators and trying to convince um, a company to um, just do a study in patients who, who have the alpha intrusion. I don't know what the other 30% are, okay? But I know that these people all seem to react the same. And I have to tell you, I, let me tell you how effective this was. When the FDA held its hearings on the approval of GHB for fibromyalgia, there were two meetings. One was a public meeting, and the other was a private meeting with professionals and consultants. At the public meeting, people spoke up and they were in tears. It was a very loud meeting. They were saying they would rather suicide than go back to the way they were. A lot of the sleep community had embraced our findings 
and we're using this and treating patients with with um, GHB based on their EEG findings. Um, but when they got into the hearing, the closed hearing, the FDA and the advisor's position was this is a dangerous drug. It may be safe giving it to people with narcolepsy because you don't have that many people with narcolepsy. But there are up to 6 million people with fibromyalgia. Um, and is that going to be safe? Well, we looked through the diversion, the illicit diversion. We did all kinds of things. I'm convinced that they could have come up with a system to assure the safety of the compound, but they turned it down, despite the fact that, um, uh, you know, despite the fact that our information, our data showed that it was more effective than anything else that was out there. But their focus was on the primary outcomes, which was pain. And that's what everybody was focusing on. And here we were looking at the spectrum of uh, findings and um, finding that, you know, there's much more to it. And this drug is really getting to the, what we think is the heart of it. And seeing the change in the alpha intrusion was remarkable. I mean, um, hey, quick, quick question with the, uh, with the alpha intrusion, would that show up on a sleep study? Or how Absolutely. would you find out if, if, that's you, if you exactly think you have fibromyalgia, you have a sleep study, right? That's exactly how. So, you know, um, my my thinking was, you know, we can get the rheumatologist to do this um, in seeing these patients, and it would it would help with a diagnosis, and it would help justify the treatment and the use um, um, of the compound. Um, but you know, uh, there was so much controversy around quote unquote date rape. Let me tell you, but let me tell you. Give me an example. Um, in Houston, there is a congresswoman by the name of Sheila Jackson Lee. Okay, and when I testified before the House Judiciary Committee, Sheila Jackson Lee had brought forth a um, a regulation to completely ban GHB because someone in her district apparently died of an overdose of GHB, and that was based on the autopsy studies. Well, guess what? Okay. GHB has been found to protect against hypoxia, and your body generates GHB when it's dying. So as you're dying, the GHB levels rise as your body is attempting oh, to protect they itself. Mistook that. And they didn't know that that was occurring. Okay, um, so the drug got this really bad rap. And I mean, there's no question that if you mix GHB and alcohol, you have a synergistic effect. Um, one and one is three. And but that's true. If you mix alcohol with a number of drugs, just ask Bill Cosby. Okay. Um, so to pick this particular compound out um, when you know, and um, that that this was mixed up with benzodiazepines. Um, anytime anybody there was date rape, a GHB would always be mentioned, and it's like quote unquote the date rape drug. Well, that's just, just not true. Um, and, um, you know, because they were finding GHB at death. Well, now we know why. Um, this is an endogenous substance. We have it in our bodies. Okay. What's it there for? I can't tell you. But I can tell you that given the major complaint related to sleep, um, given the objective finding 
of a sleep pattern that is associated with complaints of non-restorative sleep, given the correction of that, and given the fact that 70% of the patients with fibro have this same um, um, abnormality, to me, screening for uh, in people with uh, a history suggestive of fibromyalgia makes a lot of sense. This should be part of a sleep laboratory study. Unfortunately, sleep medicine has sort of gone off in a different direction um, where um, when people think about sleep medicine, the only thing they, they think about is sleep apnea. And you can diagnose sleep apnea without an EEG, without brain waves. You don't need brain waves to know that somebody stopped breathing. But here it's a disorder well, where, where you need the sleep EEG. You need an EEG to make this diagnosis. And we're hoping that this leads to other disorders that um, uh, have abnormalities associated with them in the brain waves that will be formally tested in, in, uh, as part of sleep medicine. So um, I'm convinced... Do you think uh, other disorders may have the same um, alpha intrusion? Well, Do you think it, it occurs you know, in other spots? The initial finding, look, they're using GHB right now in Europe um, for treating alcoholism, for treating opiate withdrawal, for treating in, in surgery, um, especially in brain surgery, because it protects against hypoxia. Um, animal studies showing uh, that were pre, where, where the, the, the rats or rabbits were pre-treated with GHB before having their uh, coronary arteries tied off or their, um, um, so that, so that they would infarct. They went, the animals pre-treated went 10 minutes without infarct, um, which is amazing. I mean, this compound protected against hypoxia. And finally, looking at depression. Now, in treating depression, it's sort of like one size fits all. Okay. You've got a patient with a history of depression. You try them on an antidepressant. You give it six weeks. If it doesn't work, you switch the, the dose. If it doesn't work, you switch to something else, a different class. You're going to lose a lot of people um, in the treatment while you're trying. And some people never really respond. And it does take a long time. Um, and we, I, I believe that, you know, rather than only using subjective data, the objective data is really critical and that um, we may find much better means of treating things like depression if we use um, um, the sleep EEG in, um, in the evaluation. Granted, it adds an expense, but it makes a lot of sense. Um, and you know, I mean, given the numbers of people who have um, who have depression, um, I think that this is a very reasonable thing to do is to go look and see what the different drugs are doing to it. Um, and um, but going back to fibromyalgia, I mean, given the misery, this this is a condition that generally doesn't go away. Given the misery that people experience, um, it's it's. <laughs> It's, it, it amazes me that, uh, I mean, I guess, I guess, you know, companies have tried very hard, spent a real lot of money and failed, but they failed because 
you know, when you do what everyone else does, you get what everyone else has. Right. Makes okay? sense. When you do the tests that they do on these drugs, you're going to get something similar to what they all have. And, uh, you know, what I'm suggesting is, you know, let's look at these other things that are abnormal, especially in the majority of the patients, um, their, their sleep patterns. And, and we've demonstrated that we can fix it. Um, then why aren't we either going to go with the route that we've gone or find another compound in that class, which I believe, I believe that um, there are positive allosteric modulators that do not cause, that don't have to be given twice a night, that don't um, uh, have, aren't going to be, aren't going to have uh, um, dependent liability, aren't going to have, um, um, you know, they're not going to be used as date rate type of compounds and can be very, very more specific. Um, I, I think the finding of this, the finding of alpha intrusion and our persistence in seeing it um, and ability to correct it is just something that's very, very important. Um, at, number one, it could be very important for the sleep field. Number two, it can be very, very important for rheumatologists. Number three, it could provide an answer to general physicians in terms of what to do with these patients. I have to tell you, you go around and ask physicians, what's the worst kind of patient that you have to see? And they'll tell you fibromyalgia patients, okay? They drive you crazy because there's nothing that works. And if you were in It seems like a lot of doctors naysay and say, oh, you're fine. It's just in your imagination. And I guess because they can't figure out where it's coming from, how to treat it, any of that. Okay. How insulting. The majority, the very, very vast majority of patients with fibromyalgia are women, okay? Mm -hmm. Um, I am very skeptical when I see a man diagnosed with fibromyalgia. The majority of these patients are women. You go in, they go into the doctor, and the doctor says, uh, it's all in your head. How insulting, okay? And they leave telling, being told to go see a psychiatrist. Um, the stories that I have heard, I mean, I'm telling you, ask the rheumatologist. They will tell you. They will confirm. This is the worst type of patient that we have to see. We don't want to see these people. They're a pain in the butt. Um, nothing works. They're constantly complaining. They say they don't sleep. Their mood is affected. Um, they say they hurt. Can't find anything. Um, uh, that although they do show evidence, um, biochemical evidence of pain, um, but um, and nothing has has worked. And again, my um, belief is is that nothing has worked because you've diluted. You've used. Um, you've diluted your population with so many other uh, complaints leading to um, uh, a similar complaint of pain, so many other symptoms, um, that you're never going to get anything <laughs> effective unless you get more objective data. Um, so so yes, that's sir. where I'm at. I mean, my contribution in the sleep field has been primarily, other than um, working on virtually every sleep and wake medication that's been approved uh, in the United States um, in the last 40 years. Um, uh, we managed well, quick, to get... Quick question about the, yeah. the GHB. Why do you think it has an effect, a positive effect on sleep? What do you think is the mechanism? Oh, I don't, I don't know. I mean, um, you know, we don't even know why, why it's there, except that years ago I was a consultant. I was the sleep consultant for the infant apnea team at Children's Hospital. And my job was to assess 
children, some who who have been reported to stop breathing frequently at home, um, others mm-hmm. who um, had near-death experiences, others who died. Um, and, you know, I began to ask myself, um, what the heck's going on here? You never see SIDS in the first month of life, never. Um, and generally, after the fourth month, it's you know it's already rare, but it's like hardly ever seen. What's the difference? Um, they have no blood-brain barrier. The GHB is circulating. Um, the GHP protects. I think it protects against the hypoxia, the um, apnea of infancy that we see in every newborn, um, hmm. and that it's possible that there's some abnormality either with their GHB or with the receptors involved that, um, because when we, when the autopsies occur in these infants, um, they find petechiae in the lungs bleeds and that the final event was not the only event. So they're missing something and that there's something in there that's protecting some kids and not others. Um, and we believe that um, the and I mean, what's it there for? The endogenous GHB may really be helping these kids through that period. Um, so we see some other potential uses for it. It's just that everybody is afraid of it. I mean, this isn't oxycontin. Okay, we're not creating a group of addicts. The people that I put on this drug and followed for seven, at least seventeen years, um, they did wonderfully throughout. They didn't require an increase in the dose. They didn't go through withdrawal. It changed the it changed their lives. And we believe that just as we did that with narcolepsy, that um, we can do that with this condition. In the people that I treated for fibro with GHB, when we were able to use it, um, it it was one of the most uh, blessed things that I could ever imagine having the ability to accomplish. Um, to give these people something that they haven't had for such a long time, mm. it was it was so humbling, um, but at the same time, creating so much pride. And then to see it just um, disappear um, because um, the experts were saying, well, you have to give it twice a night. What if a kid comes by and takes it off your table? Well, wait a minute. Put it on a higher table. Okay. Well, what if a kid comes right. by, you know, and... Uh, you know, it's like, come on now, okay? I mean, well, they could always make a prescription. I mean, oxycodone's prescription, and what if a kid takes that? It's far worse than, than you know, GHB. So the, all the excuses are just BS. Sounds like, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a lot of politics involved in all of this. And what happened is, is that um, when I got started, um, you know, we had to worry about the FDA. By the time I got finished, we had both the FDA and the DEA. And the DEA was absolutely opposed to this. And um, just, on pol- again, for political reasons, um, so we had to fight everybody, and we still managed to win the day when it came to narcolepsy, but we couldn't win the day when it came to, to fibro. And I understand that. I mean, giving it to 6 million people, uh, a drug that has, you know, abuse potential. Um, but... Um, Again, I'm very, very hopeful that within this next year, we will be able to identify a positive allosteric modulator of G- of uh, the GABA B receptor that um, that has a positive effect in this in this condition, and I'm I'm convinced that we'll we'll, we'll get there. So okay. that's well, my good. that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. Yep. 
So, all right, well, what, we're pretty much out of time. So what's the best way for folks to get in touch and to ask questions and find out more? 513-314-3693. But they must leave a message. Any like, email, that would be good if you're open yeah, to that? Yeah, sleepsat1, S-L-E-E-P-S-A-T, the number one, at AOL.com. I'm open to that. Okay. You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues, or we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials or even starting to appear on shelves or by prescription or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoy the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you. Thank you.